Welcome to Music History Monday for December 20th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Arthur Rubinstein, Fake It Till You Make It. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the death on December 20th, 1982, 39 years ago today, of the Polish-born American pianist Arthur Rubinstein at the age of 95. Practicing the piano. Question. Does anyone really like to practice the piano? Answer. Believe it or not, yes. However, we'd observe that those good people who really like to practice are, frankly, in the minority. The vast minority. Now, obviously, there is a galactic difference between the practice schedules of kids and adult hobbyists taking piano lessons and serious students of music and professional musicians. We would expect the latter, serious students and professionals, to be practice room junkies, addicted to practice and inseparable from their instruments. But this is not always the case. Which brings us to the pianist Arthur or Artur Rubinstein, 1887 to 1982. Rubinstein in America, 1906. Rubinstein made his first concert tour of the United States in 1906 when he was 19 years old. It did not go particularly well. Rubinstein played his first solo recital in New York City. Henry Crable, the famed music critic for the New York Tribune, was there, and his review was scathing. How scathing? I do not know, as the review itself is not to be found online. But here's what Rubinstein wrote about the review in his autobiography, My Young Years, Knopf, 1973. Quote, Mr. Crable condemned my performance mercilessly, betraying his obvious prejudice. He was to be for years my implacable enemy. Unquote. Okay, the obvious prejudice the Jewish Rubinstein refers to is unknown, because it could not have been anti Semitism. For our information, Crable wrote extensively and sympathetically on Jewish folk music and cantorial chant. During his research, he frequently attended synagogue services. Perhaps Crable was merely prejudiced against wrong notes, of which the 19-year-old Rubinstein played no small number. Back to Rubinstein's 1906 tour of the United States. Despite successful recitals in Chicago, Cincinnati, Columbus, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Providence, and Boston, Henry Crable's review circulated so widely that in each city he performed, Rubenstein first had to undo the damage the review caused before, hopefully, going on to make a favorable impression. 
Later in life, this utterly self-honest musician made the following confession, quote, When I was young, I was lazy. I had talent, but there were many things in life that were more important than practicing. Good food, good cigars, great wines, women. When I played in the Latin countries, Spain, France, Italy, they loved me because of my temperament. When I played in Russia, there was no trouble because my namesake, Anton Rubinstein, no relation, had conditioned the audience there to wrong notes. But when I played in England or America, they felt that because they paid their money, they were entitled to hear all the notes. I dropped many notes in those days, perhaps 30%, and they felt they were being cheated." Unquote. It's not that Rubinstein didn't have phenomenally dexterous hands. He did. It's not that he didn't have tremendous musicality and an extraordinary memory. He did. It's not that he didn't play with great warmth and passion. He did. The problem was that Rubinstein was so crazy talented that he was, as a professional, up to a point, able to get by on charm, charisma, and pianistic bravado, and by putting his foot down on the sustained pedal and blurring those passages he was unable to play accurately. In a word, for the first half of his career as a professional pianist, Rubinstein was able to get away without really practicing. Brief Biography He was born the seventh and last child into an upper-middle-class family in Woods, which is today the third largest city in Poland. For our information, his birth name was Leo, but his eight-year-old brother insisted on calling him Artur, and the name stuck. Rubinstein himself preferred to use the anglicized Arthur in English-speaking countries, although his American-based impresario, Saul Hurok, insisted on billing him as Arthur Rubinstein. As such, he is referred to as both Arthur and Arthur. Take your pick. Just don't call him Leo. Even by the standards of child prodigies, his talent was remarkable. In 1891, when Rubinstein was just four years old, he played for the great and famous Hungarian violinist Josef Joachim, 1831-1907. Joachim was astonished and told Rubinstein's parents, quote, This boy may become a very great musician. He certainly has the talent for it. When the time comes for serious study, bring him to me and I shall be glad to supervise his artistic education." Yosef Joachim was as good as his word. In 1897, at the age of 10, young Rubinstein moved to Berlin, where Joachim taught at the Royal Conservatory. Joachim arranged for Rubinstein to study with the famed piano pedant Karl Heinrich Barth, 1847-1922, at the Berlin University of the Arts, then as today, the largest school of the arts in all of Europe. By the time Rubinstein began studying with Barth at the age of 10, he was already playing professionally, 
he had made his debut as a professional pianist back home in Woods at the age of seven. He gave his first performance with the Berlin Philharmonic at the age of 13 in 1900, and in 1904, the now 17-year-old Rubinstein moved to Paris, there to fully launch his professional career. Oh my goodness, can any of us imagine it? Being young, phenomenally talented, and living in turn of the 20th century Paris? Rubinstein was almost instantly accepted by Paris's musical elite. He became close friends with the composers Maurice Ravel and Paul Ducat. He hung out with Camille Saint-Saëns and concertized with the violinist Jacques Thibault. Living and working among Paris's beau monde, Rubinstein quickly developed a taste for the high life. Quote, it is said of me, that when I was young, I divided my time impartially among wine, women, and song. I deny this categorically. Ninety percent of my interests were women." Unquote. One of the reasons Rubinstein was able to indulge his interests was that he discovered, having started his performing career, that he really didn't need to practice, at least not very much. Quote, I couldn't sit eight, ten hours a day at the piano. I lived for every second. Take Godowski. I was awed. It would take me 500 years to get that kind of mechanism. But what did it get him? He was an unhappy, compulsive man, miserable away from the keyboard. Did he enjoy life? it made me think a bit." Unquote. And so, for nearly 30 years, this brilliant talent, in his own mind, substantially faked it. But then he got married and made a family, and he decided it was time to truly make it. Marriage, babies, and an epiphany. It wasn't until 1932 that the now 45-year-old Rubinstein decided to tie the marital knot. His blushing bride was a 24-year-old ballerina named Aniela Wunarska, the daughter of the Polish conductor Emil Wunarska and Anna Palko Horinchowicz, who was from an ancient aristocratic Polish family with its own coat of arms. Yeah, not bad for a Jewish kid from Woods. Rightly or wrongly, Rubinstein's is an example of what the immigrant generation of my family would have called marrying up. Aniela and Arthur had five children together, one of whom died in infancy. Their surviving children include the photographer Eva Rubinstein and the Tony Award-winning actor John Rubinstein. Please, for the record, Rubinstein's marriage did not bring an end to his interests in women, which continued to the very end of his long life. Those interests included affairs with an Italian marchioness named Paola Medici del Vascello. She was born Princess Paola di Vigiano, with whom he fathered a daughter, and with the concert producer Annabelle Whitestone, Baroness Wiedenfeld. 
though Rubinstein and his wife never divorced. He left her for the Baroness in 1977. He was 90. The Baroness was 33. But back, please, to Rubinstein's marriage in 1932. He took a long look in the pianistic mirror, and he didn't like what he saw. Quote, Was it to be said of me that I could have been a great pianist? Was this the kind of legacy to leave my wife and children? Unquote. In the summer of 1934, the 47-year-old Arthur Rubinstein decided not to remain the second-rate pianist he believed that he was, that it was time to stop faking it. He cleared his concert schedule, sat down at his piano, and began a wholesale reworking of his entire repertoire. In an interview given in 1958, he described what happened this way, quote, I buckled down back to work, six hours, eight hours, nine hours a day. And a strange thing happened. I began to discover new meanings, new qualities, new possibilities in music that I had been regularly playing for more than 30 years." Unquote. It was only then, in his late 40s, that the child prodigy achieved his true potential. We know this because this is when Rubinstein began making the recordings for which he remains justly famous. In 1937, Rubinstein returned to the United States on tour. This time there were no bad reviews, only raves everywhere he played. Rubinstein and his American audiences fell in love with one another. He spent more and more time in the States, rode out World War II in Los Angeles, in Brentwood, not far from Arnold Schoenberg, and in 1945, Arthur Rubinstein became a naturalized American citizen. Back to practice. How much is too much? Despite having practiced for six to nine hours a day during his pianistic rebirth, Rubinstein was outspoken in his belief that excessive practice was dangerous, particularly for young pianists. He went on the record stating that young pianists should limit their practice to a maximum of three hours a day, though he was aware that he was not necessarily the best person to be giving anyone advice on practicing. Quote, I was born very, very lazy, and I don't always practice very long. But I must say, in my defense, that it is not so good in a musical way to overpractice. When you do, the music seems to come out of your pocket. If you play with a feeling of, oh, I know this, you play without that little drop of fresh blood that is necessary, and the audience feels it." Unquote. What Rubinstein is calling for here is a degree of spontaneity in performance and the willingness to make changes on the fly. Quote, At every concert, I leave a lot to the moment. I must have the unexpected, the unforeseen. I want to risk, to dare. I want to be surprised by what comes out. I want to enjoy it more than the audience. That way, the music can bloom anew. It's 
like making love. The act is always the same, but each time it's different." Unquote. Nicely put from someone who knew exactly what he was talking about. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.